Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions, and also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And of course, also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, now part of Networks, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage the lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Several news outlets have picked up on the fact that Microsoft's UK South and UK West Azure regions are no longer accepting new customers for Cosmos DB and virtual machines, which, I mean, both of them are pretty big, but virtual machines, you know, not allowing people to spin up new virtual machines kills a lot of their business, and it's got to cripple a lot of their customers too. Uh, It has been reported by the UK Telegraph that the entire Ukrainian government's infrastructure is currently hosted in those two UK regions. Russia targeted data centers and attacks that were being used by the Ukrainian government. So the need for them to be hosted in Azure is obvious. So Microsoft's kind of doing them a solid on that, but it's potentially putting a pinch on their resources. But also maybe not because ZDNet had an article on the topic this week too of Azure capacity limits, suggesting that the limits have been consistent since 2020. So they've been hitting those limits consistently basically since the pandemic created a huge surge in demand for cloud resources. And while the UK Telegraph was reporting on these two UK Azure regions like it was kind of unique, ZDNet reports that capacity issues are affecting Azure data centers in Washington State, Europe, and Asia due to supply chain issues. More than two dozen Azure data centers in countries around the world are operating with limited server capacity and the capacity is expected to remain limited until at least early next year. The report also suggests this is not just limited to Microsoft either and AWS and Google are experiencing similar capacity issues. The awesome Microsoft MVP and fellow Irishman Aidan Finn was quoted in the article uh, mentioning the supply chain issues and the fact that You know, this isn't really all that surprising if you've been paying attention. Microsoft haven't said too much recently on the Azure capacity issues, like at the beginning of the pandemic and the fact that there was the supply chain issues. There were some comments kind of alluding to that at the beginning, um, but not really going more into uh, specifics other than they do acknowledge that existing customers would be getting first dibs on the resources. Their official statement contains, quote, Across the globe, we have seen unprecedented growth in the cloud. With this surge, coupled with macro trends impacting the whole industry, we've taken steps to address customer increases in capacity, whilst also expediting server deployment in our data centers. Our priority remains ensuring business continuity for customers. In addition to managing and planning for growth, we actively load balance as needed. If it does become necessary to put capacity restrictions in place, we will first restrict trials 
and internal workloads to prioritize growth of existing customers, end quote. So that's pretty interesting because as you may recall, when Windows 365 first launched, they were offering, I believe, 90 day trials, but very quickly they shut down those trials because obviously they ran out of capacity. It's also interesting that, you know, the major cloud platforms and players out there are experiencing these capacity issues when one of the major benefits of the cloud is, hey, there's instant scalability there for you. But at the moment, just due to the supply chain, I guess, is the main issue. There's this choke point that's restricting that elastic scalability and growth for customers. Hopefully we're able to get back to, you know, what the cloud was intended to do, that elastic scale uh, in the near future. The new desktop Gmail design has started to roll out this week. So if you use the default theme, you'll know that it has arrived when your entire Gmail interface turns blue. Gmail's new design first entered an opt-in preview back in February, and after gathering feedback and fixing a few things, Google is now pushing that design out to everyone. Ars Technical reports, a few things have changed between now and the February preview. The most striking change is the all-blue color scheme. Uh, Google's blog post stated, quote, You'll notice the new navigation now features Material U, our updated fresh look and feel for your Google apps. End quote. Material U launched with Android 12 as a color-coordinated theming system that matched your OS color scheme with your wallpaper. There's no color matching with Gmail's Material U, though you just get a blue color scheme. And if your background changes and you're not happy with it, you can change it to something else. And also, if you're unhappy with the new large sidebar that's coming with this new theme, you can also change the appearance of that and customize more. So if you get that initial shock when the theme changes, just know that you're able to adapt it and customize it kind of more back to something that's more familiar if you'd like to. At the end of last week, Remo3 announced the world's first fully automated package modernization solution for migrations from SCCM to Intune. They are combining automated application testing with package migrations from SCCM, or I guess MECM, to Intune. They say that Remo3 provides unattended automation to test application readiness for Windows 10, Windows 11, Windows 365, and Azure Virtual Desktop, as well as identifying MSIX and multi-session suitability. By leveraging automation to collect application insights, Remo3 helps IT organizations speed the time to delivery and minimize risk in deploying security updates and other ongoing changes in desktop and server environments across physical, virtual, and cloud workspaces. You can streamline operations, optimize resources, lower costs, and improve end-user productivity. I believe Remo3 is kind of born out of AppDNA, which I used to love AppDNA, and I used to love, I think it was called the Production Manager the last time I used it before Citrix acquired AppDNA where they had this kind of automation for pretty much doing anything. You could just put in sequential steps if you wanted to uh, repackage an application while also testing its suitability for maybe something like AppV. So interesting to see that they're possibly doing that around MSIX and also helping to migrate from MECM to Intune as well. 
I already covered one article from Ars Technica, and I have to say that Ars Technica continue to produce some of the best tech-related content out there, so if you're not familiar with them, you should really check it out. I know they've got a subscription that you can sign up for. If you like the content, maybe support them by subscribing too. But this week, they published a deep-dive research into Apple's support of Macs, weighing up the average support life of Macs, pointing out changing trends, and more. And to determine whether Mac update support had improved or declined over time, they organized all Macs by release year and calculated the averages of how long that year's Macs had received new macOS versions and after that, new security updates. So as you might expect, the average is actually trending downward in recent models. I would speculate this may have to do with the recent move away from Intel chips, but also interestingly, it appeared that the life cycle for Mac OS support on Macs in years gone by, like a good chunk of time ago, was pretty low, uh, with longevity actually peaking in the 2000s, like with the 2009 and 2012 MacBook Pros. My assumption is they probably want to drive people off of the Intel Macs onto the M1 and M2 chips, so maybe they're trying to shorten the Mac OS support on those older models a bit quicker now. If you're listening to the audio-only version of this podcast, you can see the charts from their study showing the average life expectancy of these different MacBook uh, models on the YouTube edition. Or better yet, check out the article for yourself. And I'll share both the YouTube edition of this episode and the article. And you can find that at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this article or under the YouTube column. But before I get away from this story, they did also have some highlights that they shared that were not illustrated within any of the charts. And that includes, for all Macs tracked, the average Mac receives almost exactly seven years of new macOS updates from the time it is introduced, plus another two years of security-only updates that fix vulnerabilities but doesn't add new features. The average Mac receives updates for about five and a half years after Apple stops selling it. Buying a Mac toward the end of its life cycle means getting significantly fewer updates, which, yeah, that's logical. Macs that are sold for an abnormally long time, like the 2014 Mac Mini that was available until 2018, and the 2013 MacBook Pro that was available until 2019, or the 2015 MacBook Air that was available until 2019, to pick just those three examples, uh, Ventura does not support those. And you don't get software updates for longer just because Apple sold those models for longer. And this differs from the timeline that Apple uses to provide hardware repair services, which is determined based on when Apple last distributed the product for sale. So three outliers there, and I have a 2013 MacBook Pro, awesome machine. Um, Until I got my latest MacBook Pro, it was the best machine, hands down, like laptop that I'd ever used. So no surprise they sold that one for longer because it was pretty awesome. The three longest lived Macs were the mid-2007 15 and 17 inch MacBook Pros, the mid-2010 MacBook Pro, and the mid-2007 iMac, which received new macOS updates for around nine years after they were introduced. And the short-lived Mac was the 2008 version of the white MacBook, which only received 2.7 years of new macOS updates and then another 3.3 years of security updates from the time it was introduced. 
So like I said, you can kind of see that sliding scale where it seemed like the support was lower years ago, like those 2000s. But then from like 2009 was like a peak year. And that 2012, 2013 was pretty high. And now recently it started to trend down again. So interesting stuff. Check the article out for yourself. The Cybersecurity Advisory of the FBI in the U.S. has warned about Medusa Locker, which is a ransomware exploiting VPN and vulnerable RDP configurations. And it's been going since 2019 and has impacted on several healthcare systems. They say that Medusa Locker appears to operate as ransomware as a service based on the observed split of ransom payments. Medusa Locker ransomware payments appear to be consistently split between the affiliate who receives 55 to 60% of the ransom and the developer who receives the remainder. According to ZDNet, at a technical level, after Medusa Locker actors have gained initial access, the Medusa Locker deploys a PowerShell script to propagate the ransomware throughout the network by editing the machine's registry to detect attached hosts and networks and using the SMB file sharing protocol to detect attached storage. Medusa Locker attackers place a ransom note into every folder containing a file with the victim's encrypted data, according to the CSA. Medusa Locker's key actions after spreading across the network includes it restarts the Landman workstation service, which allows registry edits to take effect, it kills the processes of well-known security, accounting, and forensic software, restarts the machine in safe mode to avoid detection by security software, encrypts victims' files with the AES-256 encryption algorithm. The resulting key is then encrypted with an RSA-2048 public key. Uh, runs every 60 seconds, encrypting all files except those critical to the functionality of the victim's machine and those that have designated encrypted file extensions. It establishes persistence by scheduling a task to run the ransomware every 15 minutes and attempts to prevent standard recovery techniques by deleting local backups, disabling startup recovery options, and deleting shadow copies. These attacks can be protected against by using recommended mitigations, including implement a recovery plan that maintains and retains multiple copy copies of sensitive our proprietary data and servers in a physically separate, segmented, and secure location, implement network segmentation and maintain offline backups of data, and regularly backup data and password protect backup copies stored offline, ensure copies of critical data are not accessible for modification or deletion from the system. I'd also throw in there, um, check out Policy Pack <laughs> because you could protect the processes like for those security software that it seemingly disables before rebooting into safe mode um, you should be able to protect those so they can't be executed by these kind of outside bad actors and it gets worse a new ransomware operation called red alert or n13v encrypts both windows and linux vmware esxi servers and attacks on corporate networks the new operation was discovered by Malware Hunter team, who tweeted various images of the gang's data leak. The Linux encryptor is created to target ESXi servers with command line options that allow the threat actors to shut down any running VMs before encrypting files. And when encrypting files, ransomware will only target files associated with ESXi virtual machines, 
including their log files, swap files, virtual disks, and memory files. In the sample that was analyzed by bleepitcomputer.com, the ransomware would encrypt these files and append the .cryptt extension to the file names of encrypted files. In each folder, the ransomware will also create a custom ransom note named how underscore to underscore restore, which contains a description of the stolen data and a link to a unique Tor ransom payment site for the victim. And they only accept Monero cryptocurrency for payment, which the report suggests is not commonly sold in USA crypto exchanges because it is a privacy coin. Red Alert conducts double extortion attacks, which is when data is stolen and then ransomware is deployed to encrypt the devices. Currently, they say that the Red Alert data leak site only contains the data for one organization, which indicates that the operation is very new. The hotel group Marriott International have confirmed they were hit by another data breach after an unknown threat actor breached one of its properties and stole 20 gigs of files. The attackers could only breach one of the chain's properties, the BWI Airport Marriott, and only had access to its network for a limited time. The breach is said to contain non-sensitive internal business files and some credit card information. The Marriott said it notified the FBI and hired a third-party security firm to investigate the incident. Marriott added that it would notify relevant data regulators and roughly 300 to 400 individuals were affected by the data breach. You may recall there was a large data breach of the Marriott disclosed back in 2018, which they were heavily criticized for in terms of how they handled the disclosure and the fact that the breach started in 2014. The UK Information Commissioner's Office fined the Marriott International 14.4 million pounds for infringing the GDPR as well. It sounds like this one is at least contained somewhat, so hopefully it's not as big as the 2018 disclosed breach. LeapingComputer.com also reported this week on the fact that Microsoft have expanded their confidential computing offering and now allow Azure Cloud Computing Services customers to create hardware-isolated virtual machines with ephemeral OS disks. This means the data is not stored in Azure storage and is disposable in a sense. So if you're already in end-user computing, you're probably already familiar with the concept of non-persistent VMs. So kind of like that, that tearaway disk. It is said that with these OS disks, you get lower read-write latency to the OS disk and faster VM re-images. And also, <laughs> major benefit, they're free. So it represents potentially major cost savings, although, you know, for certain things, you may need to spin up additional persistent storage in your Azure resources to store data that you needs to persist. So I'm not sure how it works out exactly. I'm sure it's still cheaper to have like a single Azure files location rather than having these bulky desktops running on large OS disks. I know Bassfan Cam has been a big proponent of these disks for some time. Well, Azure customers who decide to use confidential VMs with these OS disks should know that they also come with a list of unsupported features, including capturing VM images, disk snapshots, Azure disk encryption, Azure backup, Azure Site Recovery, and OS Disk Swap. But I think that all makes sense because of the nature of those disks. I've been doing a little bit with these ephemeral OS disks. 
So I hope to share some findings in the future myself. And now a weekly webinar. Remo3, who I just mentioned earlier during the news, will be holding a new release public webinar on Thursday, July 14th at 4.30 p.m. IST, which is Irish Summertime, which I believe is 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time for those in the States, and obviously 5.30 p.m. for Central European. They say during the event, Josh Travers from Remo3 and Joe Harder will detail the new release of Remo3 and the ways we'll make application testing and moving to modern workspaces faster and easier. So if it sounds like something you're interested in, I'll share a link for you to register with, and you'll find that at fivebytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode, which is episode 237. And now, this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Ivan Veleko shared a web UI that he created for learning and exploring Kubernetes. It's a very interactive site that shows multi-cluster updates in real time, and it's tailored for experiments, education, Postman REST client, uh, unique to Kubernetes clusters. And you can learn what happens to pods when deployments are updated. So if you're not familiar with Kubernetes, definitely one worth learning. Uh, I did learn it several years ago when I was doing more with Docker containers. And then I took a refresher course about three weeks ago, a plural sites course. So it's very, very interesting. And it's a concept you should probably be familiar with, even in end user computing, because it's something that could potentially benefit managing your desktop applications, client applications too. And it's actually something that I'm currently working with, considering I just started with Numescent and their Cloud Pager product is a container management platform for Windows. So it's similar ethos in terms of orchestrating and just kind of automatically allowing these pods of containers to scale as needed and update seamlessly and rollback and all those great features of modern orchestration. Michael Roth shared an excellent blog post he created on working with APIs in the power platform for beginners. So I've been using RPAs, including Power Automate, but also my, my preferred one is Automate. And a big part of that would be doing API calls as part of the sequential actions. So it's definitely one that you'll want to learn. And if you're not familiar with robotic process automation yet, I strongly suggest you look at it. It's some really cool stuff. Chris Davis shared his custom PowerShell script for handling VDA upgrades. So if you're in the Citrix world and you have to do VDA upgrades, check out this PowerShell script. An interesting one that I found just by Googling because I was having this problem myself is that the Microsoft Teams Windows app doesn't remain active on a second screen sometimes. So I've actually got three monitors. I bought myself a vertical monitor for keeping Teams open on. So I can always have it and just be able to see my calendar, um, quickly switch to IMs as they come in without having to take up space on my dedicated monitors. Well, I've noticed that Teams, a lot of the time, if it's not on my primary work monitor, if it's over on that vertical one, it goes to away even when I'm actively working, which is pretty annoying. 
Well, I saw a post about this or on a forum, and there was also a suggestion of how to fix it, which is creating a JSON file and setting an enable set bounds on focus property or element to false and then restart teams. I haven't tried it yet, honestly, because I just haven't had time, but I hope to try it and I hope it works. But just know if you're having the same problem as I am, it's not unique to you. I had that problem too. The awesome James Rankin shared a blog post on setting up Cloud Drive Mapper, which was new to me. I'd never heard of it before. But he details how he has typically used Cloud Drive Mapper for helping to streamline and manage OneDrive, which is familiar to me and it could be a kind of a pain in the butt. <laughs> so anything to make that easier is pretty cool. So if you're interested in that and something you're working on currently, check out this blog post and I'll share that with this episode as I do everything that I mention on every episode of the podcast at 5bytespodcast.com. And the great Sean O'Mahony, my fellow Irishman, uh, tweeted this week that he was using Avalanche for the first time this week. And basically, it could be used to visualize Active Directory ACLs and see what can touch what in your organization. He said it's both fascinating and terrifying all at once, but it's a fantastic tool, which another new one for me. Haven't heard about it. It's very exciting. I did something similar in a previous environment, and when I turned it on and started seeing the data, it was terrifying. So it's cool to see this other resource for auditing your Active Directory. Kevin Beaumont shared some tips for those who use Defender for Endpoint and want to get the best value from a SecOps point of view. And it's a long thread with several different suggestions, so I recommend you check that out. And finally, the Microsoft 365 Defender team published an article that's really interesting on using process creation properties to catch evasion techniques. So I know this is something that's been used and abused for many, many years. And actually part of it was just bad practices from developers who were creating applications that would open and read resources on the machine using a create or write process, which could potentially be taken over from a bad actor and then gain that level of access. Luckily, I think developers have mostly moved away from that. It was very interesting back in the uh, Windows XP and Windows 7 days, if you're trying to lock down those machines, uh, you would constantly run into applications that were opening directories with write access and they weren't allowed to, it would error out because the permissions were not set for that application or that process to write to a machine specific location. But this article details how you can kind of drill into those processes and the way they're calling in order to better protect yourself. Well, just before I wrap up this week's episode, now, if you enjoy the show each week, I would appreciate if you tell your colleagues, anyone who you think might be interested in it, just help get the word out there. And if you could go to YouTube and like and subscribe to the YouTube page that you'll find on fivebytespodcast.com under the YouTube column uh, or rate the podcast on your podcast platform of choice like Apple Podcasts or whatever you use. That would be greatly appreciated because it just kind of amplifies the podcast, moves it up in the search algorithms and just gets it more exposure. Well, and even if you couldn't be arsed doing that, <laughs> I appreciate you listening and supporting the podcast anyway. And have a great weekend and I'll catch you next week.